You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Today's passage is about rituals. And I don't know exactly what you think when you hear the word ritual, but my guess is that it does not sound super exciting to you. The, the, the idea of a ritual, and especially an ancient ritual that we don't celebrate today, it, it probably feels irrelevant and somewhat disconnected from where you live. And that's because most of us, I think, are, are really just, we're just trying to make it, right? It's like, how are we going to get through Monday? That's the kind of question, as Pastor Mikey was saying earlier, those are the kind of questions that we have. How are we going to afford our rent? How are we supposed to raise our kids? How do we know which career path to take? How, How do we know we're not making a mistake today that 20 years from now we're going to look back on and regret? How do we build meaningful friendships? How do we love our neighbors? How do we not waste our lives? How how do we break through the clouds of sadness that might surround us and experience the joy of the Lord that we hear so much about all the time? These are the types of questions that we have. These are the kind of questions that we bring in here this morning, but this morning we're talking about rituals. Because rituals are what we have in Exodus chapter 13. And so here's the thing with how I think this is going to go. I believe that this chapter is one of those occasions where the answers we most need is actually found in the places we least expect. And I say that because in this passage about rituals, there are three lessons that we learn here that that could change our lives. And I want us this morning to look at these three lessons. I want to just go ahead and tell you what they are. There are three. The first one is that worship is the goal. The second is that freedom means saying no. And then the third is that your future will cost you everything. Okay, these are the three lessons we see in this passage. We're going to spend time on each one of these, but I want to go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll get started. So let's pray together again. Our Father in heaven, in this moment, with your word open before us, we humble ourselves before you, and we ask that you speak to us according to your will. We don't come to this moment, we don't come here this morning demanding answers from you, but we come this morning listening. We come with open hearts, and we trust that you have good for your people. So have your way, God. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first lesson I want us to see is that worship is the goal. And I want us to get there by first taking a step back and remembering the context of what's happening here in chapter 13. Remember chapter 13, this is immediately after the 10th plague when all the firstborn sons of Egypt were killed. All the sons who were in the houses that did not have the blood on the doorpost. All these sons were killed. And then that's when Pharaoh finally decides to let the people of Israel go. And then at the end of chapter 12, we see that a mixed multitude of Israel, which means Israel and others who feared God and all of their animals, they are actually walking out of the land of Egypt. This is the moment of the actual exodus. 
Israel, at the end of chapter 12, Israel is exiting the land of Egypt. And it's, it's on this day, in this moment, when they are leaving Egypt, that Yahweh commands and institutes three rituals that we read about in chapters 12 and 13. There are two rituals we just read about in chapter 13. But if we look back to chapter 12, we see there's a third ritual. It's the Passover. Okay, so in chapter 12, we see the first ritual in the Passover. And then in chapter 13, there are these two rituals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then the consecration of the firstborn. So altogether, there are three rituals, and these rituals are instituted right in the middle of this story's most intense action. When Yahweh is going house to house, slaying the firstborns, when there are screams happening all throughout the land of Egypt and the people of Israel are getting ready to walk out of the most powerful nation in the world that has enslaved them for 430 years. When all of this is going on, Yahweh prescribes three things that he wants the people of Israel to do every year for the rest of their life as a nation. And these three things together make up one big week-long celebration. I thought it'd be helpful for us to, 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 to get a sense of what this week would look like in Israel's history. So what I want to do, I want us to just take these three rituals, put them together, and then walk through what would this week-long celebration be like? How is this supposed to go? So this is, this is how it's supposed to go, okay? Going back to chapter 12 to 13. It's the first, the first month of the year. Right? The month is called um, Abib. It's later called Nisan. Um, basically, it corresponds to like our March or our April. It's the springtime of the year. Basically, the first month for Israel, their first month is the first month of spring. And in this first month, on the 10th of that month, each household is supposed to acquire a lamb. And they keep the lamb for four days. And then on the 14th of the first month, after they've kept the lamb for four days, they kill the lamb at twilight as a sacrifice. Okay, that's the Passover. Now, on the next day, the 15th of the month, all of Israel assembles together and they start the feast of unleavened bread. Now, leaven is the ingredient in bread that makes the bread rise and taste good. So beginning with the Passover on the 14th and then the feast of unleavened bread on the 15th, the people of Israel eat bread without any leaven over the next seven days. And then on the 21st, after a week, the people of Israel all assemble together again, and they conclude the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, at the same time that they do this, there is the consecration of the firstborn. This is when all the firstborn males of the sacrificial animals are sacrificed to the Lord. Like all the, the firstborn of all non-sacrificial animals like donkeys, they can be redeemed by sacrificing a lamb in their place. And then all the firstborn sons, they are redeemed by also sacrificing lambs in their place. So rather than Israel have to kill their firstborn sons, a lamb becomes their substitute. And that's the week. 
It starts from the 14th of the first month of the year, the 14th, and it goes through the 21st. And the people of Israel are supposed to observe this week forever. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration of the firstborn. These three rituals together for the rest of their life as a nation. And now we know that these rituals find their origin in the Exodus. Each of these three things are connected to how Yahweh rescued Israel from Egypt. And we're going to come back and look at how that's the case. But there's something deeper going on here that I want us to see. It's the fact that these are rituals. God tells Israel to do these ceremonies. He gives them a tradition to repeat every year. He doesn't just say to them, hey, Israel, don't forget about what I've done for you. He doesn't say that. Instead, he actually gives Israel a way for them to remember what he's done for them every year at the beginning of the year. God is giving Israel here a brand new calendar and their new calendar starts with these rituals. This means that Israel's new year, every year, every new year for Israel starts with Israel remembering what Yahweh has done for them. And I think it's important for us to see that Yahweh commands these rituals like right in the middle of the action. He, he doesn't wait for the dust to settle. Now, He's looking forward to when the people of Israel enter the promised land. But he goes ahead here, right in the middle of the rescue, and he tells Israel how to remember the rescue. As God is acting on behalf of Israel, he is also telling Israel how they are supposed to relate to him in light of that action. Does that make sense? Like as he is doing this thing, he is also telling them how they should relate to him doing this thing, which means overall, this passage teaches us something about worship. We see that worship is the goal. The ultimate goal is not that Israel be simply out of Egypt or freed from slavery or away from Pharaoh. The ultimate goal is that Israel worship Yahweh, which is what Yahweh is saying to them as he is saving them. If, if we remember, like worship is how this whole thing started, right? Remember back in chapter 5? In that very first conversation between Moses and Pharaoh, Moses told Pharaoh to let Israel go. Why? You remember? Because God wanted to feast with his people. God wanted his people to worship him. Yahweh wanted to have a worship service. So, so worship has been the goal this whole time, and worship is always the goal. Worship is always the goal, and that matters for us. Because worship is the goal even today. As a church, you guys know this, our, our mission as a church is to make disciples of Jesus. And that's our mission because that's what Jesus tells us to do. We want to make disciples of Jesus from all nations. But when we say disciple, when, when we're talking about what it means to follow Jesus, the very first identity marker of a disciple is worshiper. Disciples of Jesus worship Jesus. 
And it's that worship, it's the worship of Jesus that endures when everything else is over. When everything else is said and done, it's the worship of Jesus that endures. So like there's a lot of things going on right now, right? There's a lot of things going on in the world. There's a lot of things going on in our church. There's all kinds of things going on in our lives and good things, lots of things and even good things. But all of that, all of the stuff that is happening in reality, it is all moving toward that one great goal, the worship of Yahweh. Like that's what it's about. Everything is about the worship of God. And this worship of God, it it brings together our past, present, and future. I think this is important. Like we know that looking backwards is important. Like like Israel is supposed to remember what God has done in the past, but... The point of remembering God's past faithfulness is so that Israel can have hope in the present. It's because of what God has done that we can be here now and face tomorrow, right? It's because of God's past faithfulness. That's what we're doing as we gather in worship. And we're not just reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness, but but in a sense, we are also reminding God of his own faithfulness. As we gather in worship, we are saying to God, this is what you've done. This is what you have said. This is why worship, every time we worship, worship has an aspect of renewal to it. We are remembering and we are renewing. We are renewing God's faithfulness to us. And it should look like a feast. It's supposed to look like a feast. It should look like the gladness of people in the greatness of God. We want joy to be in the air when we worship. That's what, we, that's what we want, because worship is a feast in the glory of God. We are feasting in the grace of God, and that's what Yahweh wanted from the very beginning. That's what he wants from the very start, and ultimately, everything in reality is taking us there. It is. Everything that there is is taking us there. Worship is the goal. We see that here in this passage. Here, here's the second thing we learn. We learned that freedom means saying no. And so I want us to look closer now at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Moses talks about it in chapter 12. He talks about it again here in chapter 13, and it's pretty straightforward what it means. To remember the Exodus, every year for one week, the people of Israel eat unleavened bread. That's, that's what it, the, the, the feast is. And we know for sure that this feast is directly connected to the Exodus because in verse 8, in the future, when a son asks his dad, you know, imagine the scene, there's a father and a son, the son, they're doing the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the son says, hey dad, why are we eating this unleavened bread? The dad is supposed to say to his son, because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. I don't know about you, but to me, that kind of feels like one of those dad answers that kind of leaves you hanging. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, if you're a dad, you probably know what I'm talking about here. It's one of those, like, you know, your, your kid says, hey, hey, dad, why do I need to change my socks every day? Because it's good. 
Or, hey, Dad, why, why, why do you want me to clean my room? Because you need to. You guys know what I'm talking about? You get these answers that kind of leave you hanging. This, 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 this kid says, hey, Dad, why are we eating this bad bread? Because God saved us. That's the answer that he's supposed to give his son. And, and now we might assume that this Jewish dad explains more to his son about what this unleavened bread means. But here in the text, we do not see the, the explanation. We don't see it here in the text. We don't know exactly what the unleavened bread has to do with the Exodus. Well, it's because God rescued us from Egypt with a strong hand. Okay. But like, what? Well, but why no leaven? Well, it's because in the Passover, when God rescued us, we ate bread with no leaven. Okay, well, like, why was that? Like, if the kid in verse 8 is like most kids, he wants to know the why to the why. Well, why is that? Why? He keeps asking, what is the point of no leaven? Really, why, why no leaven? And it has to do with what the leaven represents. Within the Bible, in most cases, when leaven is mentioned, it's a symbol of sin. You guys remember Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus told his disciples, he said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And at first, the disciples, they, they didn't understand what Jesus meant. They thought that Jesus was just talking about bread. And so Jesus has to explain to them. He says, hey, I'm not talking about bread here. I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Their leaven is their sin and hypocrisy. So leaven is a symbol for sin. And we really see this come through in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 is an important passage uh, this is Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And here's the context of what's going on. There is a church member in Corinth, in the church of Corinth, who has been living in unrepentant sin. And Paul exhorts the church to excommunicate this member. <clears throat> and this is what Paul says. He says, do, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is a symbol of sin. And this one person's sin is like leaven to the whole congregation. This one person's sin is affecting the whole church. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So Paul is saying in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, get rid of the sin in your midst because that is no more. That's not who you are. Now you are new. Now you really are unleavened. And then right after Paul says this sentence, Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, which means there is no doubt that in 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul has Exodus 13 in mind. Like I got a theory that the apostle Paul's favorite Old Testament book is the book of Exodus. And it keeps that, my theory keeps being confirmed the more and more we dig into this book. Paul is thinking about Exodus 13 in 1 Corinthians 5, he is thinking specifically about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he makes that his argument for why the church and its members cleanse themselves from sin. And then Paul says in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8, 
he says, this is, hear this. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Paul is speaking to the church. Paul is talking to us. And he tells us to celebrate, to keep the festival. And the festival he's talking about is the feast of unleavened bread. We are, as the church, we are supposed to keep the feast of unleavened bread. Did you know that? See, this is relevant, right? Exodus 13 is relevant. We're supposed to keep this feast. But here's the thing. The feast of unleavened bread today, the feast of unleavened bread in the life of the church, it takes on its true spiritual meaning. Paul says, this is verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's the point. That is what the unleavened bread is about. So in the New Testament, for the church, the Apostle Paul looks back at our passage today in Exodus 13, and he sees that leaven represents what is sinful and passed away, and unleaven represents what is holy and new. So church, put away the leaven. You're unleavened. That's what he's saying. Put away the leaven. You are. You really are unleavened. And then, you know, we have some of our kids are going to say, well, Dad, how does Paul make that connection? How does Paul get that from Exodus 13? So I'm glad that you asked, all right? I think that Paul understands the unleavened bread this way, because in Exodus 13, the feast of unleavened bread is a seven-day ritual, and all other seven-day rituals in the Old Testament are purification rituals. If someone touches a dead body, there is a seven-day purification ritual. For someone to be cleansed of leprosy, there is a seven-day purification ritual. If a woman gives birth to a son, there is a seven-day purification ritual. And in Exodus 13, Yahweh has given new birth to a nation. And so there is a seven-day purification ritual. The feast of unleavened bread has a sanctifying, purifying symbolism. In the Exodus, when Yahweh gives Israel a new beginning, it means that they are leaving something behind. The absence of leaven is supposed to highlight this break. We're going to walk out of here free. Israel. We're going to walk out of here free, but freedom means we are turning away from something else. Freedom means we need to be like Moses and forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin. We need to consider the promises of God greater than the wealth of Egypt. Freedom means saying no. That's why there's no leaven. And you cannot have freedom any other way. In Exodus 12, verse 15, Moses says that during this week-long ritual, Moses says that if anyone eats leaven, that person 
shall be cut off from Israel. If you will be made new, if you will be made new, you will be unleavened. You cannot have Jesus and your sin. That's what this feast is about. You cannot have Jesus and your sin. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about, and that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5. We're not in Egypt anymore, son. Church, we're not in Egypt anymore. That's not who we are. We left that behind. Yahweh has done a new thing here. Freedom means saying no. Here's the third lesson. Your future will cost you everything. This is a hard passage, right? This is some dense stuff happening here. One question in the passage is why the feast of unleavened bread and the consecration of the firstborn are so intertwined. You saw the first verse is about the consecration. Then there's the feast of unleavened bread. Then it comes back to the consecration. Why are they so intertwined here? What's the connection between the two? I think the answer is in understanding this feast as a purification ritual and in understanding the Exodus as the new birth of Israel as a nation. That's why we see this consecration of the firstborn. Now, in the ancient world, the firstborn son represented the strength and authority of a father and his family. In Deuteronomy 21, the firstborn son is called the first fruits of his father's strength. The, the firstborn son actually received a double portion of his father's inheritance. Basically, the family's entire hope was bound up in the firstborn son. The firstborn son was a symbol of the family's significance in the world. Or another way to say it is that the firstborn son represented the family's future. And that helps us understand the meaning of Exodus 4.22. Because back in chapter 4, verse 22, Yahweh says of Israel, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel was meant to be the witness of Yahweh to the surrounding world. Israel was Yahweh's plan to save a people from all nations. But of course, Israel was captive in Egypt. And so that was a problem. So for Israel to truly live out their identity as, as Yahweh's firstborn son, they had to be set free. And so Yahweh does that. And Yahweh makes a statement in how he does that. This is, this is important. Yahweh makes a statement in how he sets them free. Yahweh's firstborn son, Israel, Yahweh's firstborn son would be free. The nation would be born again. But all the firstborn sons of Egypt would be slain. So the entire nation of Egypt was put in their place. And the entire nation of Israel steps into this new calling. The Passover was a new birth. For Israel. The feast of unleavened bread is a purification for Israel. And then Yahweh says, give me your firstborn sons. See, Israel has a new calling. They have this promised future with God, but that future will cost them something. What will it cost them? Everything. 
Israel knows the only reason they have their son, the only reason they have their sons is because of Yahweh's rescue. It's because we put the blood on our door. We are saved by Yahweh and therefore we belong to Yahweh. So, so here, Yahweh, we're yours. Like we are yours. And they understand, Israel understands that when Yahweh says, give me your firstborn son, he is saying, give me your future. They know what he's saying. God has given us these sons. God has given us our future. And now we give it to him. Here, take it. Our future is in his hands. In a word, this is called faith. This is faith. And Father Abraham, he knows all about this. You guys remember the story of Abraham back in Genesis? Remember God had promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation, that, that Abraham's offspring would outnumber the stars of the heavens, that through Abraham's family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. You know, the only problem is that Abraham and Sarah could not have children. And so they waited and they fumbled around and they tried to figure this thing out year after year, after years of not being able to have children. Finally, God gives them Isaac. Isaac is the promised son. He's the one. Isaac is the one through whom all of God's promises hinge. Isaac, all the promises. Isaac. But do you remember what God told Abraham to do in Genesis 22? <laughs> he, he tells, God tells Abraham, go and lay Isaac on the altar. God had finally given Abraham a son. God had given him a future, and then he says, now give it to me. And this does not make sense to us. It doesn't make sense, okay? Just, it doesn't make sense. Because if Abraham sacrifices the promised son, how will all of these promises come true? It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense. Because God says to Abraham, give him to me. Give him to me. Trust me, Abraham. And so Abraham does. And in Hebrews chapter 11, this is called faith. Isaac is on the altar. Abraham's future is on the altar. And in that moment, when Abraham, when he lifts his hand with the knife, in that moment, God steps in and he says, stop, Abraham. Okay, stop. That's enough. Don't hurt the boy. You have given him to me. Stop. You remember what happens? Knife is here. Abraham stops and he looks up. And off a little ways from the altar, there is a ram caught in the thicket. 
And instead of sacrificing his son, Abraham sacrifices the ram. And do you remember what he called this place? He called it Yahweh will provide. And he does. If you give Yahweh your firstborn son, if you give Yahweh your future, he will provide. He will make a way. A ram caught in the thicket, blood on the doorpost, a lamb as the substitute. Isn't this amazing? Like the blood and the substitution, like isn't this amazing that we find this here in Exodus 13? God says, give me your all and I will provide the sacrifice in your place. Give me your all and I will provide the lamb. Back to Genesis 22. Do you remember what Abraham said to Isaac? Father and son, they're walking to the altar. You remember this? Father and son having this conversation. They're walking to the altar, and, and Isaac has the fire, and he has the wood, and he says, uh, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Do you remember what Abraham said? He said, God will provide the lamb. Church, God has provided the lamb because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So your future will cost you everything and your future will cost you nothing because Jesus died in your place. You, you received your future from God and now give it to him so that you can have it again. See? God has provided you a lamb. And so I don't know exactly, like in this moment, I don't know what questions you bring in here this morning. I don't know what challenges you might be facing. I don't know what is weighing on you in this moment. But I want to tell you the greatest news in the whole entire world is that Jesus Christ died for you. He is your lamb. God has provided you a lamb. Trust him. Trust him. That, that's what we're doing at this table every week. This, this table, the Lord's table, this is a ritual. And we do it every week. The Lord's table is this new covenant ritual. And when we come to this table each week, we are remembering and renewing God's faithfulness to us, which is seen most vividly in the cross of Jesus. At this table, we're going to do it in just a minute. At this table, we remember that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has been sacrificed to us. Jesus, the Lamb of God, he, he has been sacrificed for us and therefore our future belongs to him. Our future is his. And so when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we, we, we are doing it in that faith. 
We eat the bread and we drink the cup in the faith that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has been sacrificed for us and we belong to him. Our future belongs to him. And this morning, if you share that faith, if you are united to Jesus by faith, if indeed Jesus is your substitute, we invite you to this table to eat and drink with us. We're going to serve the bread first. You can just hold it. Then I'll come back up and we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.